1: can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am your host, John Yargo. Today's guest, Aaron Webster, is the author of The Curious Eye, Optics and Literature in Early Modern England, new from Oxford University Press. A book that casts its attention on the early modern period far and wide, The Curious Eye will be of interest to anyone who works in early modern mathematics, optic technology, poetic theory, and the contested relationship of empiricism and empire. Aaron is professor of English at the College of William and Mary, and is a former research fellow and SSHRC postdoctoral fellow in the humanities at the University of London, and is also the recipient of the Milton Society of America's James Holly Hancock Award for a distinguished article on the poet. I'm excited to welcome Aaron to the podcast.
0: Thank you very much, John. I'm really happy to be here.
1: I wanted to start with how you arrived at this archive and these research questions. Uh, It is a project that is impressive in the breadth of its sources. How did you become interested in uh, early modern literature, and what intrigued you about the science writing of the period?
0: Um, Thank you. That's a a really generous question to start with. Um, I became interested in the early modern period um, when I was an undergraduate in college, and um I took a class that was mandatory in 17th century literature um, that I didn't want to take. Um, but I think it actually that's part of the reason why I ended up getting so interested in the period. It wasn't something I was familiar with. Um, so to me it was new and strange um and challenging. And I I liked that. Um the other thing that I liked about it, and this was probably thanks to the professor I had, was that it, it was weird. Um, things seemed really weird, um, and so with this particular project, um, similarly, I it came out of a, a graduate class I had where the professor had asked us to research um, an art, um, a topic related to Milton's Paradise Lost, but using sources that were not literary criticism. So it could be anything; it could be history, it could be um, politics, what have you. Um, I was interested in the perspective shifts in Paradise Lost. And so I started looking into um, the I guess you would say I get history of science. But what what could explain Milton's use of perspective in the poem? Um, And that ended up leading me down a rabbit hole that came out at one point in um, the early modern calculus. And I found an article by uh, a scholar named James Paxson on the early modern calculus and the allegory of temporality in early modern literature. Um, so what I liked about that article and what I liked about that project, and I guess also what I like about the early modern period is that it was taking, um, taking things that to, to my mind were, uh, belonged in separate disciplines or were housed in separate disciplines. I and mean, we were talking about allegory and we were talking about mathematics. Um, but Paxton was talking about them together as part of a broader, I don't know what you would call it, but a cultural moment um, that was interested in ideas of flux and movement and um, infinity. And, you know, how do we express these things? Um, How can we understand them? How can we come closer to understanding them? Um, And so that's kind of what got me started on this project, um, which, as you know, um, or as you said, it does have a kind of um, wide breadth of different source material. And yet, um, it's all kind of, to my mind, um, related, right? They're they're trying to answer, the writers I deal with are all trying to answer a related set of questions. Um, They're using different materials and different modes of answering those questions. Um, And that kind of, I guess, takes me into what intrigued me about the science writing of the period. Um, One of the things that I found both Frustrating, but also delightful, about the science writing of this period um, is that it's it's so composite. Um, So there, you're reading like when I'm reading about the calculus, for instance, um, it was frustrating to me because I was reading Newton's work on the calculus, and the language was totally unfamiliar from what I'd learned in high school, which was already challenging to me. His notation is different from that which we use, but it was also just a totally different way of coming at it because it's not. Um, It's not just this distilled down equation of pure mathematics, um, which is how I think of the calculus. Um, The calculus is, as it first appears in Newton's work, it's an appendix to this lengthy book on optics. And in that book on optics, we have um, some empirical studies of how light works and empirical explanations of how light works. We also have anecdotes, philosophical, well, anecdotes about his um, own research practices uh, we have philosophical speculations on the nature of God and what it would mean like um, to try to conceive of God's sensorium, right? So you've got all of this in the air, and then you have this very convoluted description of how you could measure um, the area under a curve by uh, breaking it into infinitesimally small parts. Um, so when I think normally when people are studying, um, Newton's calculus from a, a history of science or a history of mathematics perspective, they are looking to distill the mathematics out from that context. Um, what I was looking for, because I'm a, a literary um, historian or I guess a literary scholar was to put it back into that context. Right. Um, what got me was like, wow, what's this thing about God's sensorium? Um, how does this metaphor work? Right. How does this metaphor of um, infinitely small um pieces, which is in in some ways it is a metaphor, right? It's a mathematical concept, but they're not literally, we get as close as possible in Newton, but they're not literally infinitesimally small. They can't be. Um, But so I'm interested in all that stuff. And so it was exciting, but it was also a bit challenging because I didn't have a lot of, um, there wasn't a big body of criticism helping me to navigate that aspect of the science writing, but that was what really interested me. Um, because it also shows that these, these writers that we think of as, um, you know, these are the, and I'll put this in, in scare quotes or whatever, but they're the fathers. And it's not, you know, a coincidence that they're often called the fathers of of modern science. Um, you know, that we generally associate them with empiricism, um, with stripping away metaphor, with getting rid of um, the kind of flights of fancy that we would more properly place into Oh, that's poetry. That's literature. That's fiction. Um, but in their writing, um, that's that's actually not what I found um, when I was, you know, going back and reading these sources.
1: You know, I, I that raises a question for me about um, interdisciplinary work like this. I'm, I'm sort of feel like early career scholars are often discouraged in part because they have to master to they have to become legible in multiple fields, and it's already quite difficult to to uh, master one area, you know, like, uh, literary criticism and literary analysis. So um, what did you learn from that process of developing a project like this?
0: um yeah well I guess off the top one of the things I learned was um I'm never going to be a master in any of this um and that and that was difficult you know um so in the case of the calculus I mean at one point as I just alluded to um Newton's notation is different from the notation that we use now learn in high school I didn't know that so at one point I'm reading Newton's work and I'm thinking this I'm I'm Completely obtuse. The, this doesn't make any sense. I can't make heads or tails of this. You know what's going on, um, and then I kind of realized what was what was going on in part. But it was one of those moments where I felt very much um, like, well, who am I kidding? Like, why? Who am I to say anything about this? I don't. I don't. I'm not an expert in mathematics. Period. Uh, layer on top of that, I'm not an expert in the history of mathematics. Right. Um, layer on top of that, what I want to do with Newton is show what he's um, how he's interacting with um, theological debates as well as scientific ones as well as literate you know there there's just absolutely no way um, that i I feel I could master any of those areas um, and certainly that you know that's a potential weakness um, of my study. on the other hand, um, I think and I've found what appeals to people um, you know when I was presenting my work in early. Uh, stages, what appealed to people was the fact that um, I, I was trying to um, have this interdisciplinary um, interdisciplinary rather conversation. So I would go to um, conferences that were on history of science, and I would give my paper on, you know, I gave one on um, metaphors in Robert Hooke's work on my, microscopy. And people got really excited about that because nobody had really been talking about Hooke's metaphors. To them, that was new, and they wanted to learn about that from me. I wanted to learn about, well, what's the actual science from, from them? Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a process of kind of getting comfortable, but also just being open and, and asking other people for help. Um, you know, I, I called up a calculus professor in um, the mathematics department of University of Toronto, asked him to help me understand the calculus it turned out over the course of our conversation, he writes science fiction in his spare time. It was kind of like, you know, cool politically minded stuff in the 1960s. He was, you know, kind of an aging hippie and I shouldn't say aging, but, um, but anyway, so he, we had this great conversation about his um, you know, his fiction writing as well as mathematics. So um, yeah, I mean, none, none of us are um, even as we might be experts in one field, we have other interests. So that's true of the people I'm working with. It's also true of scholars, right? Um, and I find that, I guess um, that helped me as well to be a little more comfortable getting into, um, okay, I'm not an expert here, but I'm interested in it and I can learn more,
1: right? Yeah, I like, I like that, the, the idea of um, building community, building these broad coalitions, and and also this wonderful idea of, of kind of leaning away from a kind of mastery model or, or something like that. Um, I think those are both really useful. Um, the curious eye turns to the rich early modern moment when questions were emerging about whether mechanical technology like microscopes and, and cultural technology like metaphor and simile allowed for the objective visible apprehension of the world or whether these technologies were inventing the world. Um, this is one of the, um, arguments in the book that I found really, um, captivating and interesting. Um, why was this such a hinge moment in these discourses and, uh, w- what were the periods, major camps in thinking about visuality optics and, uh, I- enhanced visibility?
0: Um, yeah, thanks. I, I love how you put that, the kind of, the difference between is this visual apprehension of, or is it inventing the world? Um, and I, I definitely do argue that, but I think you you phrase it much more succinctly, and I wish that I had done that myself. Um, it's interesting to me, um, and this is kind of not answering your first question, but the one at the end. A lot of people, or a lot of writers who were in the inventing camp—that is to say, that were pointing out that two um, science writers, like Robert Hooke, like um, you know Robert Boyle. Uh, even Francis Bacon, that what you're doing here, you claim is an objective empirical study, but you are taking liberties. Um, you are inventing. You're you're turning this into a narrative or a conjecture. Um, a lot of the the people who were pointing that out were themselves in the business of inventing. That is to say, they were they were writers, right? They were poets. They were. Um, so I was thinking about this, um, and I was wondering if you know how much of that is a, a bit of. Um, you know, don't step on our toes, right? Um, and how much of that is, we've been doing this for years. And, you know, um, we recognize in this new form of, of science writing, um, a similar, uh, you know, a similar process of mind, that I think, honestly, at the end of the day, um, you know, you're never going to have uh, an absolute objective visual apprehension of the world that you then objectively render into objective prose, right? Um, and I don't even, I mean, I think it would be overstating, um, when I, I, I rather, I, I don't think that any of the writers I'm looking at from Hook, Bacon, Boyle, uh, Newton, I don't think any of them would would actually claim to have achieved, you know, a completely objective um Science, or more to the point, a completely objective um, literary style. However, it, you know, on the on the other end too, I think you know the imaginative writers would not say that they're entirely subjective, right? They they too are. There's some element of um, you know objective apprehension of the world that they then build on and invent. Um, but I think that w- what is behind that debate, right? Uh, what are we doing? When we study the world, what are we doing? When we study and then um, attempt to write or express what we see, um, is a you know there's there's a deeper kind of ethical question here um, that comes out, and it, this speaks to why it's such a hinge moment, um, because what in part what's what's happening here is the world that's being studied, um, it's not you're not just studying um, objects. That have no sense or subjecthood, right? Um, many of the things that are being studied are they're either um, non-human animals, or they are human animals, or they are plants, rocks, trees, um, which somebody, for instance, like Margaret Cavendish, feels are sensing intelligent beings, right? Um, so, if uh, if you're thinking about the objects that are being studied in these terms as things that have subject their own subjectivity, then there's um, you know, there's more importance to that question as to whether you are simply objectively apprehending them, um, as it were, right? And telling others what you've apprehended, or are you kind of, you know, appropriating their voice, right? Or or are you inventing something about them? Are you inventing um, a story about them, which happens often in the science writing of the time, I'm thinking particularly of Robert Hooke's Micrographia, where he has, um, and we might talk more about this later, but he has these really, um, I'll say wonderfully inventive, beautiful, you know, little almost personality sketches of a louse or a flea, right? Um, There's no way that those are just strictly objective apprehension, he is imagining them as little courtiers in a play. Um, On the other hand, you know he is seeing something with that microscope that's beyond what you would see without it um so yeah i mean it's a hinge moment in part because these technologies um, are new right so this you have these new technologies telescope microscope you can see things humans can see things that they couldn't see before um beyond this uh in political terms or i guess we could say like geographic terms Um, you know, you can, there's, uh, for European authors, European philosophers, there are parts of the world that we haven't seen before that are new and can be studied. And what do we do with that? And now we can see them through these new lenses too. Um, But it's also a hinge moment because part of what comes along with this is the uh, recognition that it, it, you can see more, um, but there's an ethical obligation there as well. Um, So, you can be seen more. Um, you can be studied more. You yourself might become an object of, you know, for Margaret Cavendish who says, um, she's quite concerned, right? Well, what, what happen if you put a microscope up to a lady's face? Well, her pores would look horrifyingly monstrous and she's, it's a little tongue in cheek, but there, there is that sort of fear, um, underneath that, that kind of joking question, um, which is to say that, you know, um, here's this new power, but who's the one operating it, right? And who's the one on the receiving end? And where does the responsibility lie?
1: Excellent. And it, I also learned from your book, there was an um, expanded license given over to um, a sort of theological license given over to this technology, right? Like the the sense that it wasn't um, kind of, Um, technology that defied the will of God or something so there was also a growing um, confidence or growing social acceptance to to using this technology right yeah
0: Yeah, it's to me that was actually something that that struck me um that it, it struck me both in a way that that would be such a concern in the first place that, you know, and this is my ignorance as, you know, a kind of fairly secular, you know, scholar, 21st century scholar, um, the concern, which is, um, you know, prevalent in the material I'm dealing with that, um, yeah, you don't want to go beyond the limits of what God has prescribed in terms of knowledge. Um, so, you know, from Bacon through Hook, Thomas Spratt, like a lot of the um, writers associated with the Royal Society and more broadly with, you know, this new kind of science uh, preface their work by assuring their readers that they are not going against God's wishes here and they are not going beyond those boundaries. Um So that was kind of surprising, but that made sense. But the second thing that surprised me was that having done that, having said, okay, but this isn't theologian. And the reason why I should explain, the reason why it it was okay for them um, to study what they were studying is because they weren't studying God. They weren't getting into metaphysical questions, at least so they claimed. They were studying, um, you know, just material earthly objects um, and keeping that separate. So that wouldn't be uh, as, you know, Per their arguments. that's not going beyond the limits. Um, on the other hand, I was struck then secondly by how how and it happens pretty frequently um, having said this, you know the often there would be a move rhetorically to say, you know maybe the next page of this document to say, um, with the invention of these new technologies, we can regain all of the knowledge that was lost at the moment of the fall. We can reenter the Garden of Eden, you know. We can rebuild Babel, but we'll do it in a way um, that doesn't transgress God's wishes. And you know, again, secular scholar, I, I was like waiting for lightning to come and strike them down. I was like, well, that sounds like totally heretical. You know, what are you, what are you doing? We can't just go back to Eden. Um, but it was, it, it wasn't it, like it was surprising to me how casual, in a way, um, the these writers were. Um some of them or cavalier, even you know in using that um using you know biblical stories, I don't know even quite how to put it, as a way of explaining what they were doing um not in terms of the the technical details of the science, right? I mean, the technical details, they said, we're just, when we're studying flies, we're not studying metaphysics. But in terms of when they're packaging this as a project that, you know, Crown of England might want to fund, there, they're like, well, this is actually about, it's a theological thing about recouping the losses of um, fallen humankind and improving ourselves, um, not simply intellectually, but also spiritually. Um, and it, and it often too, it would be, this is about studying God's creation in a way that's, um, respectful, but also is going to help elevate humans, um, even farther than they already are above other creatures. So that's, that's kind of, it felt like a bit of a disconnect, but one that I suppose, um, is understandable if you were thinking in those terms of, well, they have different rhetorical purposes going on here, right? Um appeasing one community who might be concerned about overstepping, you know, authority given by God and appeasing another community who wants to know what's the purpose of studying ants, right? Um, If it's not to have some kind of grander purpose.
1: Dryden critiques Shakespeare's history plays for compression and intensification. Dryden writes that the history plays, quote, look upon nature through the wrong end of a perspective, and receive her images only much less, but infinitely more p- imperfect than the life. This, instead of making a play delightful, renders it ridiculous. End quote. But what does Dryden's metaphor here um, in, in his critique of Shakespeare say about early modern poetics and representation?
0: Yeah, this is kind of a funny um, question for me because, you know, and this might be true for yourself or some of your listeners. Um, well, I first came across Dryden's essay in a, in a class on Shakespeare. I, I suspect many people do. And so reading it, we were reading it as an example of who's this joker who thinks he can <laughs> tell Shakespeare how to, how to do his job. Right. Um, and I, I think, I mean, I, I, again, I'm kind of half joking here, but I, I do feel that, you know, as far as current tastes go, um, you, you know, I think, uh, Reading that that um, that passage, it's both feels like somebody who's kind of very, very snobbish uh, towards Shakespeare, but also um, that it's it's so obviously a a question to a certain extent of our artistic taste, right? Um, But I hadn't thought about it in terms of okay, well, what's that metaphor mean until I came back to it to Dryden's essay that is working on this project. Um, and I think what it says, the, the, so Dryden's metaphor is of looking through the wrong end of a perspective or a telescope, right? Um, what struck me is how frequently in the poetic theory of uh, not just the early modern period, but also classical Greek um, poetic theory, how frequently uh, these theorists turn to um, visual metaphors uh, and comparisons of poetry to visual technology, optical technology. Um, Plato has a mirror, right? Uh, Sydney also has a a mirror, holding a mirror up to nature. Um, Now, um, for for me, I see Dryden, Davenant, some of these later uh, 17th century theorists using the um, technology of the perspective um, or the telescope instead of the mirror. I think that's significant because it is the new technology, right? Um, But I think what Dryden's metaphor... Um, says about early modern poetics is first of all that um early modern poetic theorists and poets were thinking of metaphor of um simile and of poetry broadly as some kind of visual literary technology right it's a particular kind of language um, that makes you see something in a different way um and I think that, I mean, that statement deserves more attention um, than it tends to get because we say, oh yeah, sure. That's a, it's a dead metaphor by now, right? I, it helps me to see something. I wouldn't. But the fact that it does help you to see something at a point in time when these new technologies are also helping you to see something in a new and um, distinct and perhaps distorted way, right? Um, does the microscope make something more clear or does it distort it right does the telescope um, help you to see things better or does it just make them larger you know it's the same object um, I think that it's significant that Dryden is using that perspective instead of a mirror um, and the other thing that I think is interesting about Dryden's metaphor in particular I mean what Dryden is saying which is possibly matter of taste but maybe there is more to it what to me, I read this as as Dryden asking or saying, if we want to represent something, we should do it um, in a, like a one-to-one perspective, right? Um, whereas for Shakespeare, the problem here is that Shakespeare has kind of crammed too much in there. He's, he's made everything too small. It's like a, I don't know, like a one-to-100 perspective or something. So it's harder to see. Um, that's a mathematical you know, um, formula I just gave you. But you could say, like, what's also being expressed here is Dryden's taste for neoclassicism over Baroque, right? Um, that would be a different way of phrasing the same problem. Um, and so there, too, I think what you're seeing is um, here's an issue that exists in different disciplines is being expressed in different ways. Um, but it's essentially the same is- issue, right? I mean, do we want to be messy and fraught and put jamming a whole bunch of stuff in there at once? Do we want to take it all out and zoom right in? You know, Um, do we want some kind of uh, back and forth between the two? Um, And then how do we do that mathematically and artistically, optically?
1: Tell us about Francis Bacon's intervention into theories of metaphor and language reform. Uh, Bacon saw peril in the potentially distorting lens of metaphor and simile, uh, but he and his successors, such as Thomas Spratt, couldn't quite resist the temptation of figurative language. How is this uneasiness about figurative language uh, reflected in the debates of the 17th century
0: Yeah, and and it is peril. I mean, (laughs) this parts where he's once a metaphor is on foot, you know, you you can't get that back in the bag, right? It's it's roaming around, causing all kinds of intellectual errors. Um, Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 humorous actually, and I'm not the only one to find it humorous. Um, Bacon, then and now, is talked about as as an iconoclast, right? He's the the breaker of idols. In the case of language reform, he's the Breaker of the idols of the marketplace, um, which, at their base, are about um, a concern that language does not act accurately and adequately represent the physical world. Um, you know, so and we could talk about this in terms of, uh, you know, is it is it symbol? Is it um, whatever? Um, but for Bacon, I think he's thinking in, in fairly physical terms here, right? Um, I can hold an object up. I can see it, touch it, taste it, study it. Um, and as an empiricist, he wants to do that. But at a certain point, I then have to translate whatever it is that I've, that empirically derived sense data into writing or into language. And at that point, you introduce this, um, this I would call it a mediating lens, right? Um, he calls it uh, like a a mediating language, right? Or some kind of idol that can get in the way. Um, And so you don't have, you no longer have that one-to-one relationship. Um, So uh, when Bacon is talking about the problems with metaphor and with figurative language, I think what the issue is really for him is when some, when people um, understand metaphors um, literally, right? Or make assumptions so if I tell you that, I don't know, um, my love is like a red, red rose, but then I try to understand the rose based on love has the following qualities, therefore the rose does, right, and vice versa, that's when we get in into trouble. Um, but the way it comes out, though, in in Bacon's writing and in, um, you know, the, the people who follow in Bacon's steps and praise him, it does come out as this kind of very... Um, anti-figurative language, um, anti-metaphor specifically. Um, And what struck me when I was uh, doing this research is, so yes, they're always talking about how terrible metaphor is, but they use metaphors to talk about how terrible metaphor is, right? Or they use um, analogies or they use simile. Now, part of this is just inevitable. I mean, I I don't think we could actually speak without using any kind of figurative language. Um, But some of it isn't. I mean, some of it is, it's not just I'm using... A kind of a dead metaphor but some of it's very inventive metaphors um, and what struck me about that was that the in the critical literature around Bacon and the plain style, you know a lot of um, scholars critics they note this inconsistency I mean it's not that it hasn't gone commented on been commented on um, but it tends to just sort of be pushed aside as either inevitable or unfortunate or you know okay so Bacon's a bit of a hypocrite um, but I thought, well, you know what? Why not actually um, let's go with this. So, what's behind this inconsistency? If Bacon is saying he's against metaphor but using it, why? What's happening? Um, and what I, I think this is, you know, um, this is my kind of best guess. I think what happens in this time period does have to do with that basic, you know, at the heart of this problem for for Bacon is the fact that he doesn't. It's difficult when you introduce a mediating lens between your empirical study and your expression of your results, um, inevitably you're going to open yourself up to the potential for some kind of distortion. Um, now, it, that's whether it's um, you know a telescope, a microscope, a mirror, or whatever, also if it's language. So if you're going to use figurative language, and this I think bears true um, from what I saw across the things I was reading, Use figurative language that announces itself as such. So uh, there's a preference for simile over metaphor, usually, um, in these works. Or if there is going to be a metaphor, it's such an elaborate metaphor that you couldn't help but recognize it as a metaphor and not as a literal description, right? Um, So make it clear that you are putting something in between objective empirical data and... Um, representation or expression of that data so that your readers can recognize that um, and I think that that to me that helps to account for what's that going on with that inconsistency that actually think figurative language itself is not something that um, doesn't have its own history to it at this particular moment in time the way people were thinking about figurative language is different from how you or I might think of it they're thinking of it like that mediating lens, right? Like that telescope, like those other technologies that carry this risk of distortion. Um, So in the same way, you want to be careful with the kind of figurative language that you use, when you use it, how you use it. It could clarify just as a telescope or a microscope could, but it might distort in the process. Um, And I think that that's, um, yeah, that's how that uneasiness comes out. Um, But it's also why we see um, writers... Using figurative language, even as they're saying we're not doing that anymore. What they really mean to say is we're not using um, you know lazy, uncontrolled figurative language without thinking about it or without letting you know that we're doing it. I, I think is what I would say
1: that's really lovely like uh, how do you sort of um, short-circuit figurative language? You lean so self-consciously into it that, that you know a reader can't help but recognize it as such. Um, that's great. I, I'd love to give listeners a um, sort of taste of, of the book, uh, the, the sort of flavor of the book. So um, I'm going to read a passage, a block quote from the book uh, from uh, Robert Hooke's uh, Micrographia. And then you're going to read um, your analysis um, as kind of as it's written in the curious eye. Um, so, quote, uh, and, and uh, Hook is talking about um, a, a louse, uh, the sort of pest. Quote, this is a creature... So officious that twill be known to everyone at one time or other, so busy and so impudent that it will be intruding itself in everyone's company and so proud and aspiring withal that it fears not to trample on the best and affects nothing so much as a crown feeds and lives very high and then makes it so saucy as to pull anyone by the ears that comes in its way, and will never be quite till it has drawn blood. It is troubled at nothing so much as at a man that scratches his head, as knowing that man is plotting and contriving some mischief against it, and that makes it oftentimes skulk into some meaner and lower place and run behind a man's back, though it go very much against the hair.
0: As part of Hook's pedagogy of sight, this extended description of the Louse's culture can be interpreted as a means of refamiliarizing the magnified image of the Louse. First, by stressing the Louse's commonness, will be known to everyone, and second, by recreating the context in which the reader would be most likely to have encountered it, while scratching one's head. But by framing his description in terms of a political intrigue in which the Louse plays the role of the unscrupulous court schemer, Hook also creates new literary and political context for this Louse that open up on the very sort of multivalent interpretive possibilities that the plain stylists were broadly anxious about, and that Spratt more specifically claims the Royal Society has successfully excised from its writings. Structured around a series of puns that enhance the comparison between the body and the court, the Louse's actions operate on both a literal and a metaphorical level, the latter of which draws Hooke's Louse and by extension Hooke's work, into the larger arena of courtly politics. Read literally... The Laos is indeed troubled by head-scratching and does pull anyone by the ears, draw blood, run behind a man's back, and go very much against the hair on one's head. Read in the context of affecting the political crown, however, all of these actions become metaphors for plotting and contriving, arguably all the more so in the context of the recent restoration when political plotting and intrigue was still a very real threat. Pulling the ears becomes a personal insult, running behind a man's back becomes an act of betrayal, and the drawing of blood becomes a matter of life and death. Thus, the Laos is described in a way that both explains, in mechanical terms, how it performs the operation of sucking a man's blood through, quote, a contrivance somewhat resembling a pump, a pair of bellows, or heart, end quote, while simultaneously ruminating on the human psychology and the political consequences of being a, quote, proud and aspiring, end quote, bloodsucker.
1: What a lovely close reading! Um, how do you go about crafting um, writing like that? Do you have um, revision strategies? Do you have uh, you know trusted readers that that you seek their feedback on on potential writing? Do you have um, techniques? Well, one of the things I do is is keep a list of sentences in academic writing that I admire, you know, as as inspiration uh, and sometimes models. That's,
0: that's lovely Um, i definitely have um i will write down particularly you know um evocative phrases wonderful phrases um from academic writers um in my own uh writing process i yeah i am constantly revising um i read aloud all the time and i was kind of chuckling when you asked if i have um trusted editors um my cat um, and it, and it used to be when they were younger, my children, before they could talk, I would read my work aloud to them. And if, if they were like, you know, sometimes they might squall or cry or something. I'm like, okay, fine. You know, that's, that's a no go. <laughs> um, but you know, in a case like, uh, in, like that, um, in part, you know, what I'm doing there, I think, and, and I may not even be consciously aware of it is I'm mimicking Hook's writing. Um, so we talked earlier about um you know why the science writing of this time period appealed to me and i was saying i mean broadly speaking it's because it's so literary and it has all of these kind of wonderful poetic qualities to it um in that case i feel like i you know I, i i read a lot and i kind of hear those patterns in my head um and then when i'm writing i i um mimic them but um that maybe makes it sound all too natural this book took years of writing and revision um and you know reading aloud reading aloud reading aloud um going back changing editing um i did have lots of um pairs of eyes on it along the way too um that i'm i'm really grateful for um friends and colleagues and then also um external readers, uh, from Oxford university press who were extremely generous. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very labor intensive process for sure.
1: You know, that's interesting. You know, you're not the first person, the the first like academic, um, sort of literary critic that I've talked to that has said, you know, in the process of writing, they came to emulate the subject of their analysis or like found echoes in their own work, which is um, really fascinating uh, to think about. Um, the uh, The third chapter of The Curious Eye examines this discourse of visuality and knowledge making uh, through imperialism. Uh, you show that texts like uh, Bacon's The New Atlantis, uh, Robert Hooke's Micrographia and Cavendish's The Blazing World. Contest the epistemological assumptions of visuality and empiricism, often carrying forward the periods understanding race, ethnicity, and nationality. Uh, what were Bacon's, uh, and, and we're thinking specifically about the new Atlantis and uh, Cavendish's, and again, we're thinking um, of her works of fiction, somewhat opposed representation of empires of knowledge.
0: Um, yeah, it, it's It's interesting, um, the sort of framing that uh, question, um, because, you know, I could say, and this is true as well, Cavendish takes issue with a lot of Bacon's epistemological assumptions. um, But where it becomes um, even more interesting to me is when it's worked out in both their cases in their fiction writing, and specifically their utopian visions, right? Um, Because I think that's where you see. Some of the consequences of their epistemological assumptions getting in, as you say, into issues of race, nationality, um, and empiricism and imperialism. Um, so um, I'll I'll say um, off the top that I often teach Bacon's New Atlantis and Margaret Cavendish's Blazing World in uh, to my to in classes where we'll read the, both of them, um, and interestingly. Um, students tend to be um, more uh, made more uncomfortable, more uneasy with Bacon's New Atlantis than they are with Cavendish's Blazing World. Even though Bacon's New Atlantis seems like it should be, a, a, you know, I think from his perspective, this is a perfectly functioning utopia. It's a, it's a serious, straightforward utopia um, where people are meant to be uh, happy, and um, New Bensalem is an ideal society. Cavendish's blazing world uh, is a world that um, is, is less so um, superficially, at least uh, perfect. Um, you know, it's, it's marked at different times by civil strife. At one point, the empress is engaging all out imperial full scale war against her enemies. Um, even their, uh, their, their scientists, their group of scientists, Congress of Natural Philosophers, um, this kind of dissolves into bickering and infighting in the blazing world. Um, the complement in in um, Bacon's work, the fathers of Solomon house, Solomon's house are essentially a very unified orderly. Um, they all agree. Right. And yet it's that it's Bacon's vision. That's more troubling um, to my students. And I, I find that really interesting, but I, I think it actually has to do with some of the implicit assumptions behind Bacon's work versus Cavendish's. Um, so I'll, I'll start with Bacon because in some ways it's Bacon that Cavendish is reacting against. I mean, she's writing, um, you know, a generation later, but she also clearly has his work in mind. So um, Bacon's um, uh, New Atlantis uh, describes this utopian state, um, island, city-state, what you want to call it, of New Bensalem, uh, at the heart of which is the fathers of Solomon's house, who are um, Bacon's, it's kind of Bacon's ideal um, empiricist laboratory, and these are his imperialist, um, that was a slip of the tongue, empiricist, but also I would argue imperialist, um, natural philosophers. Um, What they do is they trade in what the word that Bacon uses is light, um, but in its very kind of broad associations, um, knowledge, illumination, you know all of the things that i think are and then and increasingly later associated with the spread of british imperialism as we're bringing light to all these dark corners of the world um through uh our knowledge through our science through our modern medicine um but also through our literature through our culture through our language right and bacon's work um i think is very much in in that vein even though it's written so early it's you know it's in the um they were part of the 1600s so but at a point when england is um and britain is not an imperial power yet um but but the basic premise is that these fathers send out members from their um, community to various corners of the world where they trade for knowledge um but they do it very secretly Um, which is, again, why I think my my students get disturbed. They're always, they they pay for the knowledge, but it's unclear, like it's hard to know that you, could you really actually, I mean, they don't tell people that they're, what they're going to use that knowledge for, even exactly what they're, it's just light, right? So for them, light has whatever value they assign it. So it's hard to know whether you're getting a good deal, right, if they're paying you for your light, but you don't really understand what what that is. Anyway, um, once they gather the light, they come back, to um solomon's house they determine what to do with that light and then in a the book ends it's incomplete as is bacon's project but the idea is eventually they will then share that light with the rest of the world and if you want to think of this as i do in terms of imperialism or you know um yeah nationalism even racism um i think you could see in that a kind of vision of we have this central um authority um of you know uh who and they're actually they're explicitly christian um in bacon's work who gather knowledge from all kinds of different sources package it do what they want with it and then effectively sell it back as their knowledge right um so you can look at it economically in terms of economic imperialism too i mean it. it if you wanted to I mean, you could kind of extend this forward and say it's just similar models here too we're going to extract resources or labor um you know refine a product and then sell it back at a higher price if you wanted to get that far um but it does speak to i think what how um yeah i mean how does intellectual property or light or illumination or whatever you want to call it um, get worked into this imperial model of centralization and then dissemination cavendish's um blazing world which is writing back to and against bacon's by contrast in cavendish's um uh it's called paradise actually but her um sort of utopian city-state uh we have not this um sort of so you have the fathers of solomon's house right um and they, they're actually there's a separate ruler they're sort of ostensibly separate from the the political state. In Cavendish's blazing world, they're not, you have the empress who appoints a body of natural philosophers to answer her scientific questions. Um, but rather than going out and extracting knowledge, deciding what the truth is and sending it back out, um, they go out and and gather knowledge, um, come back, argue about the meaning of this knowledge. Um, she has a diverse body, I think significantly a a diverse body, um, of well, uh, scientists, for instance, if she wants to learn about atmosphere, she sends birds out, right? If she wants to learn about the earth, she sends worms out, um, creatures whose bodies are appropriate uh, in her mind to that kind of empirical study of that area. Even so, when they come back, they can't decide on you know one truth, um, and the empress at different points has to threaten to take away their to take, threatens to take away their microscopes and their telescopes because they can't agree on what the findings are. Um, she at one point threatens to dissolve their society um, only when they beg her to let them continue because otherwise they'd have no way of determining who's smarter than the other. I mean, it's all very satirical. Um, she allows them to continue, but they can't get involved in politics. So it's much messier um, and, uh, and much more skeptical um, when it comes to this idea that you could ever have any sort of complete knowledge of any one thing. Um, at the same time, it's also her utopia, in spite of the fact that, and maybe because it has this kind of messiness, the empress herself often argues with herself about what's the best politics for my people, what's the best system of learning, you know. Um, at the end of the of the book, though, the empress decides that because there's so much um, disagreement and, and um, sort of uh, debate that... Um, the best mode of government and religion for her people is uh, government is an absolute monarchy. Religion is a single religion. Now um, I said earlier that my students find tend to find Bacon's vision more disturbing. Arguably, I, you know, and I kind of expect this, it's, it's sort of could be disturbing is disturbing, right. To have this, you know, recognizing that amongst her, um, population there's all of this sort of fervent disagreement and then end it by saying and well forget that we just have one of everything but um the narrator of the work and then cavendish and the empress herself there's also a character the duchess of newcastle which was cavendish's title um even as the uh, as the empress is deciding that you know we need to have one religion sort of one one system of governance um it's on the understanding that this is to um, to keep civic disobedience, civic upheaval controlled. Um, and the narrator of the work or Cavendish herself at the end comes in, um, to make the point that, you know, um, any, the mind remains free essentially, right. is how I read this. Anybody could create their own world. She says, I've decided to create my world this way. You could create your own world, however you want. And I think the idea there is, um, that there's some kind of compromise for Cavendish. Um, and this, I mean, it's relevant to the idea of empiricism and and the politics of the work as well. It's a very imperialist work. I mean, she's an empress, right. And she rules over the world. She does so with an iron fist, um, at different points, but, um, unlike Bacon's vision where knowledge, um, gets folded into that imperialism in the blazing world, I think one's, knowledge, their imagination, their mind, their thoughts remains free to them. Um, publicly, politically, you, um, in the blazing world, there's a need for authority and control, um, which again, I feel like, you know, talk about that in my students' side too, right? To what extent is, is that, you know, a, a given or not. Um, but even with that need for control, there's an acknowledgement that, you um, the, this empire is always going to be diverse. Um, you're always going to have disagreements, different, um, people, different animals, different bodies are going to experience the world in different ways. Um, and if we're thinking about things there like race, imperialism, I think that, um, subtly what Cavendish is perhaps getting at is an understanding that, um, there is no singular truth or experience, right? So, um, in the context of trying to um, export or import culture, knowledge, ideas in an imperialist setting, um, she seems to be suggesting that that's bound to fail um, at, at, on some level at some point because um, it's just unsustainable to assume that everybody is going to be experiencing the world in the same way, right? Or that one, you know, one truth would be u- a universal um a universal truth, right?
1: Milton's Paradise Lost uh, returns again and again to the subject of visuality and and visibility. Um, But often critics have thought of the poem's exploration of optic perception, particularly the role of visual perception as metaphorical or theological or autobiographical. Um, But Milton was attuned uh, to -to up-to-date, up-to-the-minute observational science by uh, Descartes and Kepler, um, who were reimagining light and optics. What what does Milton's poem have to say about the relationship of the science of metaphor and the the physical science of light?
0: It's interesting um, that you you say um, autobiographical, because what I suspect is... um, It is the fact that, you know, autobiographically, Milton is blind um, that makes him and and his poetry um, aware both of these kind of cutting-edge developments in the science of optics and sight and vision, but also really invested in the metaphorical associations with light, vision, blindness, um, which, I mean, I I imagine, um, you know, it would be very difficult not to have those in mind when you're trying to make sense of, you know, and Milton certainly did this throughout his writing, why is it that he is blind, right? Is this some kind of punishment from God? What does it mean to be blind? Um, How does it impact how you experience the world psychologically um, and not just physically, right? Um, So in Milton's work, um, one of the things I see is that uh, yes, he is interested in the science, the cutting edge science of, of vision and of optics. Um, uh, we know from his letters that he was interested in trying to diagnose the cause of his own blindness, um, which is probably glaucoma, although he didn't know that at the time. Um, it wasn't, you know, it was known as a disease or, or I guess the, um, it was known as a disease, but what it was, wasn't understood, right? How it was operating. So, you know, he writes to friends about um, looking for cures, describing his symptoms. Um, And so it makes sense to me that he would likewise, I mean, as as somebody who is well-read and interested in kind of scientific developments more generally, that he would of course be interested in developments in, um, you know, uh, for instance, Kepler's um, correct, as it turns out, you know, uh, description of how the eye works uh, it's another obstacle optical instrument like a camera obscura right um at the same time what i see in milton's writing and i think what what maybe makes him um not not unique but he's he's very um especially poignant when he uh writes about these things um unlike somebody like descartes who my example is always is descartes i mean descartes um, uses blindness only as a way of describing sight, right? He talks about eye beams. They're like a stick that a blind person uses, um, which seems it's, you know, it's kind of all the more ironic given that he doesn't seem to have any consideration for that, the situation of that blind person that he's, you know, co-opting as a, as a way of describing sight. Um, in Milton's case, uh, Milton, um because, I think because of his blindness, Milton is also interested in all of these other, this rich, it's with us still, right, this rich um, and often, you know, ambiguous um, set of associations that go along with light. I just had one, we were talking about Bacon's New Atlantis, where light is intellectual and spiritual illumination. It's the thing that chases away figurative darkness. It's a marker of your spiritual wellness, uh, you know, all of those things. Um, are going into Milton's poetry um, hand in hand with this other um, more scientific way of trying to account for how light actually operates and what does it do in relation to sight. Um, so Milton's descriptions of this are very poignant, right? And when he talks about, um, you know, himself as kind of a, a, a white um, blank sheet, right, that onto which things are projected, but he doesn't see, Um or I think um, you and I were talking about earlier about Samson Agonistes and Samson's description of himself as a dark body, not just an unseeing body, but a dark body um, that blocks light. Right? Um, these things are physical descriptions, but they also have an emotional valence to them um, and a psychological one. Right? Um, so Milton's poetry, I, I think. Um, is especially poignant because it combines those two things. At the same time, he's not the only one who treats light as a, both, um, you know, a, a object of physical science and a theological concept. Right? Um, Robert Hooke, I talk about in the book, in his lectures of light, starts with Genesis, and he starts with, you know, God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. And he does a close reading of Genesis that he, from which he extracts a physical theory um, a wave theory of, um, of light, right? So, you know, and he, he kind of talks too about God. light's the first thing God created. Therefore it's a, a most important. So, you know, it's another one of these cases where the science and the, um, literature and the metaphor go hand in hand. Um, Newton similarly in his optics closes with what he, he tells us is it's speculative, um, but it's, it's a very metaphysical exploration of what it would mean by extension, um, what would God's optics, such as they were, be like if you were an infinite body that you know could sense everything visually at all times? What would that be like? Um, so, yeah, not not unique to Milton uh, that mixing, but I think Milton's is particularly poignant because of his autobiographical experience.
1: We already touched on this a little bit, but. I did want to ask you about uh, 17th century mathematics and the way in which uh, infinitesimal calculus paradoxically offered a paradigm of infinite regress. Uh, The cosmos offered infinity or models of infinity, but also um, did this understanding of increasingly smaller scales. Is that right?
0: Yeah, and it's... um... Kind of another cool part of this project, um, where again it was that it was partly through that mathematics of the infinitesimal that I got started in on this, um, because as you say, like that that's a par- that's kind of paradoxical mathematics if you want to put it that way. But this is a time period um, where you know I for me I'm coming at this I'm a student of metaphysical poetry which loves paradox right like th- that idea of um, two things being paradoxically related. Is one that sort of broadly speaking is it, like it comes up in the art of the period. It's coming up in the in the poetry. Here it is coming up in the mathematics. So it's another one of those places where I think you can see that interdisciplinary, um, you know, kind of nature of of here's a question. What do we do with it? And in this case, one that I I, I you know just. I'll be a little bit um, pithy here, but I think people just thought paradoxes were really cool, right? I mean, they are really cool. And yes, it's really kind of cool that you could look at that uh, universe as Galileo does through his telescope and say, you know, holy crap, this is so much bigger than I had um, thought. But part of the reason it's bigger is because it's jammed with so many more stars than anyone has ever seen. Um, there's the there's Dryden and Shakespeare there, right? That telescope is actually showing you there's this, you know, millions of stars where you might've thought there were, um, hundreds, right? So what does that mean? Well, it, it both means that it's larger, but that its pieces are kind of smaller. There are, you know, there are more of them. Um, but what that mathematics, I think ends up, and this is one of the things I kind of came to through the, when I was working on this book, um, It ends up producing this um potentially kind of subversive um strand to the to the science of the time so you have these grandiose visions um of you know well, getting back to the garden of eden or building babel up into the mountains or beyond right not the mountains into the heavens um the unlimited uh potential for human knowledge the bacon's very grand like this project of empiricism bacon wants um to lay out is going to go on for generations, you know, into the future, you have that. But then you also have as part of that study, um, you know, where do you start in hooks, micrography, you start with a smudge of dirt, or you start with these tiny little things that are seem on the face of it to be the exact opposite of that kind of vision. And yet, they are intimately related to it, um, paradoxically related to right these infinitely small, little bits of data. Um, are the thing that produces this infinitely large body of knowledge. Um, and if you think about that scientifically, it's one thing. Mathematically, it's one thing. I think you could also think about it socially. I mean, um, in the case of somebody like Hook, Hooke is um, educated. He's, he's brilliant. He has a lot of natural talents. Um, he was not a gentleman. Um, and yet here he is producing this work for gentlemen at the Royal Society, telling them in the introduction, he has he addressed to the king. Um, I'm, I'm humble, the objects of my study are dirty, grubby, insignificant things that but that's the best I can offer you because I'm this small, you know, worthless in a way individual, you're a grand king. But what is he actually saying there? He's actually saying nobody else has seen this stuff. And it's completely integral to the science. And in a way, you know, um the fact that you know he can take that um, posture as somebody who's simultaneously saying this is this is stuff that you look at as worthless, and yet it is of in in each of these worthless little bits is an entire universe that you have never seen. Um, you know, it can't help i th- I think, but inspire some kind of sense that you know, in these little overlooked powerless, arguably, objects. Um, That's where, uh, you know, that's kind of the source of this grand future. Um, And how we do this, right, and this is kind of part of the book, um, is a debate over, well, who's in, so who ends up being in charge of that, right? Is it the person operating the technology? Is it the thing being studied, right? Um, And where does that relationship between big and small but then all of these other apparent oppositions right rich, poor um, or even things you know uh, male female um, if these things that are are seen uh, infinite infinitesimal as opposites but are actually paradoxically quite closely related you know where does that end that sort of recognition that these things actually depend on each other or that there's um, a more intimate relationship between the two, than it might initially appear.
1: That's excellent. Um, I usually conclude um, with, with looking forward or asking a guest to, to um, invite us into their next project. Uh, now that this book is out in the world, what are you turning your attention to? Do you have a writing project underway or a course that you've wanted to create or, or something else you're excited about?
0: Um, yeah, I have a writing project underway, and I've actually taught parts of it um, as a, you know. I've done a couple courses on the material I'm working on, um, partly selfishly because it helps me, but also just um, because I, you know, I think it is probably better for my students too. Um, the subject of the new project is on lunar um, narratives in the 17th century, and um, the what their relationship to, um, the European colonial imagination. Um, so generally, um, broadly speaking, the, the idea behind the book, it starts from Galileo. Um, it starts from Galileo's observations of the moon where, uh, which Galileo in Starry Messenger refers to repeatedly as being earth-like. The moon is earth-like in nature. It's not as, you know, contra Aristotle, it's not a, a pure, um, unchanging, ethereal body. Um, Galileo himself did not say that the moon was inhabited or inhabitable. He was very cautious. And in fact, in his letters, he says um, he's not going to go there and that he doesn't think that it is. Um, But certainly by calling it Earth-like, he invited subsequent generation of scholars, writers, interested parties, philosophers, Um, to do exactly that. So you get this huge outpouring of speculative accounts of life on the moon um, and trips to the moon. So that's the material I'm looking at. But what I'm interested in is the way that um, these writers uh, are imagining life on the moon. Um, It's often compared either implicitly or explicitly to um, the discovery, European discovery, of the America's Um, And the people who are imagined to be inhabiting the moon are often um, compared again, either explicitly or or implicitly to um, what Europeans, um, European literature um, from the same time period, how it tended to depict um, the indigenous peoples of the Americas. So both in terms of things like skin color, um, culture, right, Uh, but also in terms of theological questions. Um, what is the status of these beings? Are they fallen? Do they, can they be saved? Um, so that's uh, the kind of thing that I'm interested in. Um, and um, yeah, it, it's, I, I'm partway into the book. Um, as I say, I've, I've sort of been playing around with some of these ideas and courses that I've taught. And um, it's it, it's been inter- good for me um, to see that, in general, it's sort of something that my students get excited about, um, but also something that they get excited about because I think they can see the legacy of that connection in contemporary science fiction as well, right? Um, And some of the, um, you know, some of the concerns I'm looking at in this early period um, of like an early period of European colonization, um, contemporary science fiction is dealing with that history now um, in a kind of post-colonial context. Where you're starting to have, um, you know, uh, writers from different communities, um, including, you know, um, indigenous authors writing science fiction that resists that kind of, um, you know, very common science fiction trope of exploration, um, conquering, settlement, etc. Thank
1: you so much for joining us, Erin.
0: Well, thank you very much for having me. It's delightful.